Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I want to start this morning uh, by, by reading some lyrics. Boy, what a, what a joy and what a, what a pleasant surprise to hear that PV is home. Um, I didn't know that before this morning, so I'm, I'm kind of ramped up. Um, and I was thinking about it because if he were here and if he were preaching this message, he would actually sing for you. Okay. Um, so instead you got, I'm not going to sing these words. I am going to read them. Uh, it's, uh, they're from a song by, by Mercy Me. And it's one of their older songs. I, I like a lot of their older stuff, uh, a little more than their newer stuff. If you like their newer stuff, then you know, no offense to you. And don't come to me later and be like, well, listen to this song. You know, um, I just, I like this song uh, because it's, uh, it's all about the love of God. It's all about how unsearchable and how immeasurable and how indescribable the love of God is. And in the second verse of this song, uh, these are the lyrics. Um, so here they are. <clears throat> Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky." I absolutely love those words and just the image that they paint for us, that if we had every resource at our disposal, if the entire ocean was ink and we had no end of writing utensils, and if every human being on the planet was a skilled poet and a skilled writer, and all those things came together and it was tasked to us to describe at length the love of God, that it still would not be enough. The oceans would would run dry before we could fully describe the love of God. And that scroll, though stretched from sky to sky, still would not be enough to contain. And so um, I, I hope this morning, my prayer this morning is that we are all uh, impressed with Christ, that we are all uh, impressed with the love of Christ and who he is and what he has done for us. Uh, John writes something similar. The, the, the Apostle John wrote something, not nearly as, as uh, he, he wasn't writing a song, so he wasn't trying to be poetic or lavish in his language, but he wrote a very simple statement towards the end of his gospel that is similar to, uh, to the lyrics of that song. He says in John 21, 25, uh, and there are also many other things that Jesus did. So again, this is at, towards the end of his gospel. John has gone through um, uh, telling us about who Jesus is. And, and, and when you read John's gospel, you, are, you, you, you get this, this sense that his whole purpose is to reveal the identity of Christ. He's not so much interested in, in recording history. He's not so much interested in, in making um, religious arguments. He just wants to reveal Jesus. And we have all these, these, these profound I am statements that he records that Jesus makes. And so he says, um, there are also many other things that Jesus did which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of hyperbole, but maybe not, you know. Um, and it's just this powerful statement that to try to, to encapsulate all that Jesus is and all that he has done and all that he has promised to continue to do is, is, is impossible to our finite beings. And there's this idea that I've heard and it's not, I, I, you know, you, you won't find this in Scripture, at least not explicitly, okay? Uh, but it's this, this wonderful idea um, that even though Scripture says that when we are in his presence, we will, be, we, we will know just as we are fully known, that also perhaps one of the reasons why, why heaven is for all eternity is because that's how long it takes for us to fully get to know our Savior and all the things that go into being an infinite God. Um, and so this morning, I would invite us, and I believe Scripture will invite us uh, to meditate on the grandness of Christ. And though truly, uh, we can never fully describe, fully measure, fully encapsulate all that Jesus is in one sermon or in one 
passage, or probably not even in one lifetime. Paul does as good a job as can be expected. He does as good a job as, as, as anyone else uh, to, to paint for us a beautiful glimpse. Okay, this is a beautiful glimpse into the fullness of our Savior. And so we're going to be in Colossians. We're going to continue in chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 13. I just want to remind everyone uh, what our context here is, that Paul is writing to a church in Colossae that he did not found himself. He's not the founder of that church. He writes in chapter 1, verse 7, that that was Epaphras. Um, But Paul has heard testimony of the young Colossian church faith and how uh, their faith is characterized by brotherly love. And we spoke at length last week about the testimony of love that Paul writes about. And he says, you know, if we know nothing else about you guys, the testimony of your, of your love for each other, your love for the saints has, has reached far and wide. And that the source of that love uh, that the Colossians found was in their hope for eternity. He said, because of the hope you have for, for heaven, that, that hope has sourced your ability and your freedom and your passion to love each other in the here and now. And few things, guys, few things will rob us of the ability to love each other as Jesus loves, like when we focus on the here and now, like when we focus on the temporal, when we focus on our minor offenses, on the things that are passing. If that's where our focus is, if our focus is on things that will one day pass away and 100 years from now won't matter, it will be so difficult, if not impossible, to fully encapsulate the love of Christ that we are called and commanded to emulate. And so for the Colossians, that vision of the hope of heaven that fueled their love. And so despite these, these really good things, despite this, this, this testimony, uh, Paul also had caught wind that they were now facing uh, probably their, their first true test. They were facing a test of compromise. They were being pressured under the weight of the surrounding worldviews around them. Uh, we discussed those a little bit last week, how those wor- worldviews, they were threatening to water down a Christ-focused gospel that they had received. And so they were being tempted to mix their Christ-focused gospel with, uh, with the works of the flesh or with the philosophies of, of man or with practices of mysticism or asceticism or legalism. And they were being tempted uh, to be drawn to those things as a means to a more mature faith or as a means to, to, uh, to, to have more access to, to God. Um, and so as we go through this section, it's important that we keep that in mind because Paul's about to just uh, like unleash um, everything uh, in his arsenal about who Jesus is. And the point of this passage is that it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to fully embrace Everything Paul is about to write about Jesus and still feel like Jesus is insufficient and still feel like I need all this and then something else. Um, I need all that Jesus is, plus God's going to expect more of me. It's going to be impossible to believe that God would expect or require anything more of us than to be found in Christ. If everything Paul writes about Jesus is true, and we are indeed in him, in Jesus, then what else could, you, what else could we lack? What else could God possibly require? So that is the, uh, the, the thinking and the context going into, we're going to start in verse 13. I know I, I ended in verse 13, I think, last week, so I want to backtrack a little bit um, in verse 13. Here's, here's, here's what I want to do. I want to read this whole section. We're going to be in verses 13 through 20. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to read it through. Um, I want you just to let the words uh, rest on your thoughts, how Paul describes the ministry and the person of Jesus. And then we will go back and break it down verse by verse, starting in verse 13. He has delivered us. He being the Father. He's still talking about the Father. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He, being Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things 
were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And then after that, Paul's going to go into uh, how that identity, how the person, the ministry of Jesus has affected the Colossians. And so next week we're going to be looking at, okay, if these things are true about Jesus, then what does that say about your identity if you are in fact in Christ? That's for next week. For now, let's go ahead and go back up to verse 13. Last week I mentioned that um, you know, Paul speaks in, in, in past tense here. He's not talking about something that has yet to happen. He's not talking about something that is depending upon something else to happen first. He says uh, he has delivered. He's already delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. And this morning I want to go back to that to talk a little bit about this idea of conveying. I think some, translates, some translations say translate. Um, he's translated us into the kingdom of, um, of his son. Uh, and and just, just to emphasize this point um, on what that, that phrase, what that word would have meant to Paul's original audience. Historically, when you were talking about conveying a people uh, or translating them into a different kingdom, uh, what, that would, what that would refer to was when one nation was going to war against another nation and they would conquer that nation and uh, the survivors, they wouldn't just leave them in their land and they wouldn't always take them captive into the conquering nation's land. They would take them, transplant them. They, they, they would lift them out of their land and, and, and take them and, and plant them into a different land that they had also conquered. Um, and just here's my little plug for... For home groups, this is something that we, we, have, we have discussed a little bit in our home and in our Thursday night Bible study. We've been going through the Old Testament prophets. It's a fun time. You should come. It's great. Uh, we were talking about how this is what the Assyrians would do. Uh, and this is, and they weren't the first ones to do it, but they were the ones who did it a lot. And they were known for, they wouldn't just conquer you. They wouldn't just defeat you. They wouldn't just take you prisoner. They would rob you of your identity and your connection to your homeland. And for us, maybe we hear that and we think, well, what's the big deal? It's just a different place. But so much of the ancient people's identity was wrapped up in geographical location, especially for the Israelites. If you think about it, what was, what was part of their covenant? They, they were a covenant people, and a major part of that covenant was the the promised land. It was where they lived, where they grew, how their communities flourished. It was tied to a geographical location. Um, and so the promises of God and their identity as God's people are tied to where they physically live. And so for a nation to come in, not just defeat them, not just take them prisoner, but then to say, you are no longer that people because you're no longer in that land. We're going to take you and put you in a different land entirely. Okay, and so what that would do, it was a way of saying that old life is gone forever. Um, you cannot reclaim your native practices, your native culture, and your native identity. All those things are gone. And we know from history that at least for the northern kingdom of Israel, after that, truly, they were dispersed and and, you know, to this day have yet to reclaim a lot of their, of their identity as God's people. So when Paul says God has conveyed us from darkness into the kingdom of his son, he's taking an image that was very negative, that was something you would want to avoid. It wasn't a good thing. Uh, but now he's saying this is what Jesus has done for us. We are a conquered people, praise the Lord. And when Jesus conquers, he does lift us out from that old identity. He does take us away from our old cultures and our old practices and the things that define us. And then he transplants us into a new kingdom and says, that old you is gone. There's no reclaiming that person. 
You are someone and something entirely different now. You are new because now you are a king. You are a citizen of my kingdom. Okay, and so um, it's not just, you know, he saved you and now, you know, you're a Christian. It's the old you is gone. And everything that would define you or that you, had, you would identify with is gone. Don't try to go back to that. Don't try to reclaim it. He has conveyed us into his kingdom. And whatever we were before is gone forever. And we now have new identities and a new way of living in Christ. Verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Um, sometimes in... In the seasons of our Christian walks, God, God will, will, will bring these, these doctrines, these teachings, sometimes just words that come to, to define how, we've, how we process our faith, um, how we think about um, what God's doing in our lives. And for me, I love the idea of redemption. I love redeeming when it comes to our faith, so much so that if you've been around me long enough, you've probably heard me use the word redeemed uh, way too much uh, in my prayers and in my conversations. Uh, but it's, it's just, it's, it has come to have such a significant um, uh, meaning in the way I internalize and process the gospel and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. I'll often find myself praying, Lord, I've made a mess, <laughs> or I am a mess, the world's a mess. There's just mess everywhere. Uh, but Lord, you can redeem all things. And you've promised that you will redeem all things for your glory. You will redeem what is broken and what is just garbage. And you'll turn it into something beautiful that has eternal value. And so if you think about the act of redeeming, right? Um, we're, we're coming out of the Christmas season, right? And we just took down our Christmas decorations a week ago. I'm still in mourning about that. Like it bothers me. I would, I've, heard, I've said before, I wish we could keep it up all year. It just, it makes me happy. But um, uh, so, so we're coming out of Christmas season. A lot of us, um, because people are getting harder and harder to shop for, right? Um, and and I, 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 try, like I have a rule that I try to, to keep and I always break. Um, I, gift cards are great. They're super convenient. I try to avoid giving gift cards because I feel like I should know you well enough to give you what you want. But it never works. Um, so a lot of us have got gift cards, right, for... For, for Christmas, maybe, hopefully. Uh, a lot of those are going to sit in your wallets for like another couple of years before you remember they're there. Um, uh, but if you were to go to a store and they have their wall of plastic, right? They have all the gift cards. And, 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 and you were to take one of those plastic gift cards and run out the store um, without going to the cashier, without the cashier assigning value to that gift card, how much value does that piece of plastic have? Zero. Thank you. Someone said it. Yeah. It's, it's, there's no value. It's, it's just plastic, you know? If you were to go somewhere, they issued, like, um, uh, you know, paper gift, uh, gift certificates. You were to, to, to steal their book of, of gift certificates, but they hadn't been signed, and they hadn't been stamped or whatever else they do, and you're like, hey, look at all I have. Um, you have nothing. Um, the, these days, uh, sometimes you'll, you'll get gift certificates through your email, and you have, like, a series of numbers that you've got to put in, and that's a pain, right? Um, but if you were to take those numbers and say, hey, look at all these numbers I have, um, uh, look how much money I have, but there's no value assigned to it. No one in authority has assigned those things value, then what you have is worthless. Until someone not only assigns value to it, um, that's part of, the, part of the puzzle, right? Um, if you have a gift card in your wallet and someone has assigned value to it, but all it does is sit there and it's never redeemed and it's never taken in and cashed in for its value, then it's still, it has, it has value in there, but until it's redeemed, it's not doing you any good, right? And so the beauty of this idea of redemption, in my mind, God takes things and very often people that the world would consider without value, that the world considers just common, just everyday things, um, sometimes maybe even the world considers trash. And not only does he assign value to us because he has the authority, um, then he redeems that value for something eternal, for something eternally beautiful that we could never accomplish on our own. And in case that's not enough, um, Paul um, also reminds us 
the source of our value in Christ. He says again in verse 14, uh, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. What is the source of our value? It isn't gold and silver. Those things pass away. It isn't cash and wealth. It's not Bitcoin or anything nonsense like that, okay? Um, our value, our, the value that God assigns to us is based on the blood of his son. We get our value from the blood of Christ, from the precious, perfect blood of Christ that leads to the forgiveness of sins. And so the idea of redemption, sometimes we just kind of brush past that word, like, yes, we're redeemed. Okay, understand what Jesus has done, <laughs> to redeem us, understand the grace of God, to even assign us value to begin with. He could have said, okay, I'm going to assign you value, but it's up to you to figure out how to redeem it. He, he, he doesn't do that. He assigns us a value and then he redeems it himself. Okay, he plays both roles. And so understand not just our value, not in a way to puff us up or to make us think that we're something or we're not, but to make us appreciate even more the grace and the love and the compassion of our Lord. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Okay, and so um, verse 15 starts a whole section um, that some scholars believe maybe Paul is quoting from a a, a common Christian hymn or maybe a poem. Uh, We can't be sure, uh, but the beauty of of how he writes these next few verses is, is, is unmistakable, okay? The idea of image. And so this word carries with it um, the idea of, of so, so if you would have a coin, right? And if you think, you know, 2,000 years ago when they had their currency and their money, their coins were, were, were stamped, right? Kind of like ours are today. Uh, they were stamped with the impression of whoever was in charge, as long as that coin carried with it that impression, then that coin was officially approved by the authority. This is like legal tender, right? Um, and so, um, so when he says he is the image of the invisible God, what he's saying is Jesus carries with him the authority, the same impression um, of the invisible God. Look at um, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Uh, This is right before the Great Commission that we all know and love. Jesus says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he sends them off into the Great Commission. But part of what it means to bear the image of God, at least in this sense, that he is, he doesn't just bear the image, he he is the image of God, is that he is, uh, he carries with him the full authority of the Father. Um, And then um, when Paul says the invisible God, it also reveals, so so if we're talking about the image of something that, uh, the image reveals something that's otherwise unseeable. Okay, so if you think about the Ten Commandments, right? And God says, you shall not make any, what, any graven images, right? Why? Because people who would believe in these, these idols and these pagan gods, they say, well, we can't see the God. We can't hear the God. You know, we can't interact with him. So I'm going to make an image so that at least I have a physical, uh, visual way of relating to what is otherwise unseeable, to something that I can't, I can't encounter with my senses, so I'm going to make an image of it that I can, okay? And so Paul borrows from that idea to say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that he is the fullness of God. And there are several times in the book of John, in the gospel of John, there's at least four times where Jesus affirms and declares that, yes, the Father is unseeable. Yes, you can't see God the Father, but you can see me, and I and the Father uh, are, are one. So look at John 1.18. Jesus says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So again, you can't see God, but the Son is declaring him to you. You are encountering God through the Son. John 5, 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his, his voice at any time nor seen his form. Again, he's, uh, in, this, in this context, he's kind of defending himself against his his enemies and those who, who are accusing him. And he's saying, you can't even see God. You can't even hear his voice. Um, but the Father, the one that you can't see or hear, uh, is testifying 
about me through the signs and the wonders that you are bearing witness to. John 6, 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, talking about himself. He, is, he has seen the Father. And then John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, and this is when uh, in, in the upper room, when Jesus is, is preparing his apostles for what's, what's about to happen. Um, and he's praying for them. And he's promising them the Holy Spirit. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, Philip says, just, just show us the Father. You know, just, just, if you just show us the Father, then, then, then we'll be fine. Then our faith will be firm. And we'll be able to stand strong against all these things that you're talking about. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? So he's saying, Philip, if we, we, we've been together for three years. <laughs> you have been walking with the Father. You have been encountering the Father. You have seen the Father because you have been walking with and encountering and seeing me. Right? And the, 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 the beauty of, of that. So... Um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, let me keep going. Uh, Jesus also says in, in John 4, 24, again, um, talking about the Father being invisible. He's having this conversation with the woman at, at the well, and she's trying to start a debate about worship and proper worship practices and where you worship and how you worship. And, um, and Jesus says, uh, time is coming and, and, and now is when those who worship shall worship in spirit and in truth. He says, the, he says God is spirit. Um, so spirit is unseeable, right? Um, and so what this means, what this, what this uh, tells us is that for generations, for millennia, um, until the time of Christ, God is essentially unknowable. You can't encounter God before Jesus. Uh, you can't see him. You can't listen to him. Um, yes, there are these, these, these exceptions in Scripture. There are times where his people would catch a glimpse of him here and there. There are even a few select individuals who seem to have a special relationship with him. We think about Abraham and Moses. God says, you know, I'm calling him a friend. And he's not just a servant. He's a friend. He says of David, he's a man after my own heart. So there are these, these exceptions. But by and large, for the masses, for people like you and like me, God is unknowable. In order, and just think about it, like, in order to, to have, have any idea what God thinks about you, you, you can't just ask him. You can't just, just, just fall down in the privacy and, 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 and the shelter of your own home and, and talk to God. You have to go through all of these, these things and all these other people to try to encounter God. And even then, you're not really sure. You just have to take on faith. You just have to believe all these things that God is saying, all, the, all these laws, all these promises. God, I can't see them. I can't see you. I, can't hear. I just have to believe that sooner or later you're, you're going to make this make sense. Okay? For, for thousands of years, that's how it is. And then Jesus comes on the scene and changes everything. And now all of a sudden, God can be seen by anyone with eyes to see. And God can be listened to by anyone with ears to hear. And you can touch God skin to skin. Not only can you touch God, but he's, really, he's willing to stretch out his arm and touch you in your uncleanness, in your leprosy, in your disease, and whatever it is that makes you a social outcast. Now God is touching you skin to skin. And so in Christ, God drew near to his people and allowed himself to become knowable for the first time. Um, and uh, later on in this chapter, we're going to see in verse 19 that the fullness, it says, that pleases the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. So Jesus, Jesus embodied the fullness of God. It wasn't like he was the partial, like you, you, you're getting like half of God, or I guess it'd be a third of God, right? Um, now the fullness of God is in Christ. And then Jesus promises his disciples. So, so you might be here list, listening to that and thinking, well, that's all well and good for them 2,000 years ago. I want to see Jesus. I want to touch Jesus skin to skin and all those things you're talking about. The beauty of what Jesus is saying in the upper room is, okay, so God is now, um, God is now near to you in the sun. And after I leave, he, he's going to be even nearer to you in the spirit. For thousands of years, God's unreachable, unknowable, can't see, reach, or hear him. For 33 years, he becomes reachable, he becomes seeable, he becomes knowable. Still, 
There's still distance, though. Yeah. And now in the new covenant, there is no distance. He is completely knowable and reachable because he, he has promised to dwell within us. So we have amazing privilege in the Holy Spirit. Um, so again, the beauty of who Jesus is, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Just a quick note about this, this idea of firstborn because that gives some people some difficulty um, because you think it's, it's difficult to think about Jesus as being born and, and rightly so because um, we, you know, we would say, well, if he's born, does that mean he was the first one God created? That, we, we call that heresy, okay? Um, so don't believe, that's not what Paul is saying. He's not talking about firstborn in terms of like biology, like Jesus was, was born, but a about his position of prominence and, and authority and his rights to inheritance. So again, in this time, the title and position of firstborn was one where you were first in line to inherit what belonged to the Father. Everything that belongs to the Father belongs to the firstborn. And that's what Jesus says in John 16, 15. He says, all things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So he is, so Paul is making a declaration to the legal entitlement of Christ as the firstborn of all creation. Nothing else in all creation has any claim to the inheritance of the Father other than Jesus. And then, the, and we're not going to get into this today, but um, then Paul writes in Romans, and here's just, just the scandal of grace. And so Jesus, as a firstborn of creation, is, is a legal heir to everything of the Father, all things. And then in Romans, Paul writes, and God has called us co-heirs with Christ. Now that inheritance, Jesus' legal inheritance as a firstborn, um, God welcomes us into sharing it based on nothing that we have done, okay? Um, Verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Um, John, again, I'm quoting from the Gospel of John a lot. This is great. Uh, in, in, in the book of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, John puts it this way. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Um, I remember being a kid and reading this and being like, why would you call Jesus the Word? Um, and, this, and if you've done any kind of study about this, you, you know that Greek word is logos, right? Um, and the word logos is what theologians call a very pregnant term because it's full of meaning. It's full of diversity of meaning. And it's full of life. And it's difficult to unpack all that that term means in just a short uh, you know, sentence or short statement. But in the book of John, when John calls Jesus the Word, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John is using it to describe Jesus as the personal power of God. So Jesus is the personal power of God that was at work in the creation narrative of Genesis. So that when God spoke creation into being, when we read in the book of Genesis, is that God says, let there be light, and there is light. Those words, as they are going forth from God, um, the creative force behind those words is Jesus himself. That's the claim John is making. That everything that was created, in Genesis it says God spoke it into being. That's true. In the New Testament, in Coloss- here in Colossians and in John, we read that Jesus brought it into being. That's also true. That means Jesus, as the word of God, he is the creative force behind God's word. He is the power, the, the creative power behind God's word, behind God's commands. Um, and so to speak something into being is undoubtedly to exert authority and power over those things that are created uh, and over the creation itself. And so when Paul says... In verse 16, by him all things were created in case anyone was like, well, what about this? What about that? He says, "Um, all things that are in heaven, all things that are on earth, visible and invisible. You got to wonder, why would you even mention that? Like, we're not even thinking about invisible things. Like, who's there saying, well, Jesus created even the invisible things? You don't even know that that they're there. Why would you ask? But Paul is saying, if, if any argument, anything that you would add, and here's why, here's why. Anything that you're trying, again, remember the context, anything you're trying to add to your faith, anything that you think 
It's got to be Jesus and this. And we're going to see in chapter 2, I mentioned this last week, that the Colossians were even being tempted to worship angels. That was a common thing we read about about it in the book of Hebrews as well. Um, Why would you worship angels? Angels were created by Jesus. They are created beings. He created them. He has authority over them. And Paul just got done saying how now you have access to to the creator of those things. Um, Why would you worship a lesser creation when you have access to the one who created? All things um, in heaven and on earth, invisible, uh, visible, whether thrones or dominions, that refers to authorities, uh, human and spiritual authorities, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, uh, power and authority we can see and power and authority we can't see. Paul says all of that was created by Jesus, and Jesus has made himself completely accessible to you. Why worship something less? Um, and then at the end of that verse, um, <laughs> Paul kind of tosses in this, this, this second conjunction as like, like an afterthought almost. He says, all things were created through him and for him. So we can kind of get our heads around maybe that Jesus creates all things. Can we recognize that not only are all things through him, okay, the hard part is sometimes remembering that all things are for him. That everything that's been created, not just has been created by him, but that they're for his glory. They're for his pleasure. And at its most basic truth, this means that nothing in all of creation is ever really about us. Everything belongs to the pleasure of God. That includes our relationships. They're not for us. They're for him. That includes our bodies. They're not for us. They're for him. That includes our wealth, the things that we accumulate in this life. However you define it, it's not for us. It's for him. And that includes heaven itself. Okay, we've got to be careful, church. We have to be so careful with a gospel that would present heaven as being about us in any way. Okay, um, I get asked this sometimes, and I understand, you know, because, because uh, the way we present the gospel sometimes, um, we, it's like, hey, do you want to go to heaven? Well, you have to go through Jesus. I'm going to tell you that is a very short-sighted version of the gospel. We get to be with Jesus in heaven. Heaven's, heaven is, is like the side effect. <laughs> Jesus is, is, is the main event. And so often the way we present and think about the gospel is that Jesus, he is the doorway into heaven. That's true. But he's so much more than that. He is the essence of heaven. He's the whole reason heaven exists. If you were to strip away everything else we imagine heaven to be, even the things we know because scripture says, if, 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 if just hypothetically, if we were to take away, there's no streets of gold. There's no mansions for us. There's no crowns. And, and this one makes me, there's, there's no wedding feast. I really hope there's a wedding feast, right? Um, but... If, if none of those things were, were there, and all heaven is, is the presence and the glory of Jesus, then, then heaven, is no, heaven is not diminished at all. The glory and the draw of heaven isn't diminished even a little bit if everything that we think is going to be in there is gone except for the presence and glory of Christ. And this is why we got to be careful because so often we get trapped into this thought that Jesus wants me to be happy and heaven's going to be a place where, where I'm happy. And, you know, Jesus does say, I'm going to prepare a place for you, okay? But then he says that where I am, there you will be also. So, yeah, he's preparing a place for us, but it's not for us. It's so that we can be with him because we belong to him. Him. And people will ask me, well, is this going to be in heaven? Like this thing that I have, that I enjoy, that God's given me to enjoy, and it's a good gift. Is this going to be in heaven? Because I can't, I can't imagine being happy in heaven if this isn't there. If this thing or this relationship or whatever else, fill in the blank. And who knows? I don't know. Uh, Paul says no one can imagine what God has in store for his people. But, um, but if your happiness and your hope for heaven depends on, on something other than Jesus being there, oh, my goodness, you don't know Jesus well enough. Okay, and Paul is saying you don't know Jesus well enough. 
And the, the goodness of God to his people is that even though that is true, it still pleases God and God chooses to take glory for himself somehow in lavishing his love upon us. Read in Ephesians chapter two, verses four through seven. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It is all about Jesus. We can never re- diminish that truth. But in his goodness and in his this awesomeness, God somehow makes it still about Jesus by lavishing his love upon us, by showing the exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us for all eternity. Um, just the beauty and the love of our Savior. Verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. He is before, so whether we acknowledge it or not, Jesus comes first in all things. In God's economy, Jesus is the priority. He holds the place of preeminence. Better to acknowledge that freely and willingly in this life than to do so with fear and trembling in the next life. We have to make no mistake, Jesus comes first. Um, and in him, all things consist. He is the one who sustains all life, and it is exclusively through him that we can. So if, if Jesus, if, if, if it's only in Jesus that everything consists, that everything is made whole, if that's true, that means it is only in completely finding ourselves in Jesus. If, if, if the entirety of our identity, who we are and how we live and how we view ourselves, if it's only when that is completely found in Jesus, that we are ever made truly whole, truly complete, that our purpose, that our purpose from creation can ever be fully realized. And there is nothing within our own grasp or power that would have any life in it apart from him. Um, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He's the head of the body, um, we understand that that means authority, which it does. He is the authority of the church, the body of the church. Um, not only is he the authority, he's the source of life. Without the head, this is, this is easy, right? Without the head, there can be no life. There can be no thought. There can be no will. The head is not only the authority of the body, it is the source of power. Um, we can function to some degree without other limbs, Right? Um, but, with, but there's no functioning. There's no functioning that brings life. There's no functioning that points to life if the head is not present. And the reason why I'm kind of harping on this for a little bit is um, I don't want to paint too graphic a picture. Um, but sometimes, you know, the body will, will spasm or convulse, right? Um, there are a lot of churches because the, the context that Paul's talking about is who is the source of life and authority for so, so we've been talking about the individual. Here's what Jesus is to the individual. Now, here's who he is for the church. So the context is the church. And there are a lot of churches that are merely corpses that have the appearance of life because they are spasming and convulsing. But there's no true life because the head is not present. Because the head's been replaced by a person, or by a program, or by an ideology, or by a committee, by any number of things. Uh, when Jesus is not the head of the church, the church has no life. So that's what Paul is saying. Um, verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Um, this, uh, this word, uh, reconcile, is, is another, uh, another one of those words, kind of like redeeming, that has really come to, to, to uh, inform the way I process and think about my faith. Um, where is reconciliation needed except for where there is brokenness and separation, right? The whole idea of reconciliation is bringing together, right? Br- bringing two things that, 
that should be joined that have been separated, bringing those two things together, uh, reconciling, fixing, mending. And um, we can debate all day long about the nature of sin, about the nature of humanity, the depravity of humanity, what original sin is, all that stuff. Um, and, and people waste tons of time and paper and books <laughs> um, trying to figure all that out. What we can all agree on is that we live in a broken world, that we are broken people living out broken relationships in a broken world. And God has put something innately in us that reminds us that we were intended for more, that we were created originally for something better, something different, something more. But because of sin, because of brokenness, we are not who we were intended to be. There is now separation, not only separation between us and God, very true. But because of that separation, now there's also separation between us and each other. We can't be fully reconciled to each other. And there is separation between us and our divinely appointed purpose at creation. Why bother creating humanity? Why create Adam and Eve when you know they're going to rebel? Why allow them to procreate and have endless descendants when you know those descendants are going to rebel? Uh, the, the created purpose for humanity, we read in the book of Genesis, is to walk in the cool of the day with the Lord. That God's willing to go through everything that he's had to go through with us <laughs> for generations because it is his desire to walk with us in the cool of the day, to have fellowship with us, to be with us, to have a people different from the angels. The angels are just like they're great, but, you know, they're not made in the image of God. Uh, different from the animals. Animals are great. I love animals, but, you know, they're not us. God wanted a special people to call his own that he could walk with, have fellowship with, have relationship with. And that is our intended, that, that is our created purpose. And now we, we've been separated from that because of brokenness. And through Jesus, Paul writes, now we have, recon, he says, by him to reconcile all things to himself, not just you know, not just the, the, the things we think about when we think about salvation. Everything is going to be reconciled by Jesus back to the Father. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace, that peace that brings reconciliation through the blood of his cross. And here's a cool little bonus thought, okay? Uh, this is not part of our journey through Colossians, okay? In 2 Corinthians five seventeen through 20. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. We just read about that. And, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So now that we have been reconciled with God and with our created purpose to walk with him in the cool of the day, God has entrusted us to be ambassadors of that same message and ministry of reconciliation to the rest of the world. Uh, that should sober us with the holy fear that God calls upon us to carry on the same ministry that Jesus has. And it should also fill us with awe and wonder that for some reason it would even please him to involve us. Um, and God has not told us to do anything that he isn't going to complete himself. He says, you know, he, he's the one who's doing the work. He's the one that's going to complete that reconciliation. But he's passed that ministry on to us. He says, now I want you to mimic what I've done for you and, and, and take that to the rest of the world. Again, a sobering thought, a fearful thought, but man, what a privilege. Um, in Christ, not in our own strength, not in our own power, but in Christ to be a part of God's ministry of reconciling the world back to himself. He doesn't need us, but he delights in us and he delights in bringing us along for the ride. Um, so we've spent the fullness of our time this morning on just eight verses, I feel like we've only barely scratched the surface of all who Jesus is, of all that Jesus is, all he has done and continues to do. And so um, 
when you consider all that we have read, and again, remembering the purpose of Paul in writing this, I would ask you, I would ask myself, all of us, what more do we need that Jesus has not already accomplished? What more could we bring to the table than what Jesus, than all he is and all he has done? Why do we, like the Colossians before us, why are we tempted and tested and tried and drawn to the idea that we need to add something else? That somehow all of this, it's great, it's good, it's not enough. I need to do something too. I need to make sure I'm doing these things and following whatever else, right? Um, What more can we add to Jesus for our righteousness and our salvation to be complete? Paul's word to the Colossians, and I believe to us, is that we resist the temptation to try harder, right? That, I'm going to be careful here, okay? Where that idea takes us, it takes us further from Christ, I got to try harder in my own carnal will. I need to try harder in my own own strengths. Or I need to join something else to Jesus because it it can't possibly be enough. And Paul says the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. It doesn't make sense. It can't possibly be true. Surely there's something else I have to do or I got to add something to it. It can't can't just be that. Um, And those, those heresies... Um, the ones facing the Colossians, the ones we deal with today, those are the things that will take us further from intimacy with Jesus than anything else. Uh, and so instead, again, resist the temptation to try harder. Instead, know your Savior better. Know your Savior more deeply and more intimately, as fully as you can, as fully as we can, with our finite minds, be pressed deeper and deeper into knowing Jesus better. Uh, there is no other source of peace, reconciliation, or wholeness. So let's pray. <sighs> Lord, you, you have done great things. You've done more for us than, than even a servant like Paul could put into words. We're thankful for the words he did write, inspired by your spirit. Um, and, and, and yet, we, intrinsically, we know that there's so much more. Uh, so, Father, I pray that we would go from this place just impressed with Jesus, impressed with all he is, all he continues to do, um, his presence with us through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us against the similar temptations and challenges to try and do things on our own, to try and and conjure up a greater faith from our own willpower or our own carnal strength. Lord, we know those are dead ends. We know those are roads that lead to failure. Uh, Would you set us free from those uh, those bondages and instead lead us into deeper and deeper relationship with you? Lord, we offer you all we are and all we have for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.